The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading for this morning can be found in Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 17. If you don't have your own copy of scripture, you can find one in the chair in front of you. And if you're using that black Bible, it is on page 948. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. You to keep your copy of Scripture open there in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to spend the next several minutes together looking at what God has to say to us as the Holy Spirit carried along this author to write these words to us. Uh, The implication every Sunday um, on Sundays uh, that I don't say it explicitly and then explicitly on Sundays like I say it this morning is this. My encouragement is to have your Bible out and open. Uh, I want you to be tracking through with what we are seeing. I want you to see that these are not just the mere words of a man. These are not my ideas, but this is God speaking to us through his word. And I want you to be able to verify as we march through these verses that this is God's word to us. And so I would encourage you every single Sunday and beyond, anytime you're listening to the Bible being taught, to have those words open uh, in front of you. Have the Bible open so you can, you can see and track along for yourself. This morning, when we look at these couple of verses, the sermon title is going to come down to this. Stay the course. Stay the course. The main idea to stay the course in the race of faith, we must be strong, strive forward, and avoid hazards. If you remember, what we have seen from the author is that he has been relentlessly practical in seeking to show us how to live like Jesus because Jesus is our great high priest. He took 10 chapters to lay before us the realities that because Jesus is the Savior who died, was buried, and resurrected, He alone has the power to save sinners from their their sin. And not only are we called to believe this, but we are called to walk this out. 
The walking out of that course can be hard. The race can be tough. And so the author has been encouraging us and encouraging us and encouraging us to practically live out these realities. And now it's almost like as we're rounding the corner and we're heading toward the finish line, if you've ever done anything in sports and you have a good coach and this coach is just cheering you on and cheering you on and saying, don't quit, don't quit, stay in the race, stay the course, keep on, be strong, finish, finish, finish. That's what the author is doing right now. If you know your book of Hebrews, we're about to be done. And this author is wanting you to hear something. Something he's been saying, but he's going to lay out a couple of things for us about what it means to stay the course, but he's specifically going to lay out a couple of items that can cause us to trip and fumble along the race. And he says, I want you to be aware of these things so that you can avoid them, so that you can stay the course, run strong, and actually finish the race. And so that's what we're going to see today. I'm going to pray for us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to make plain these words before us. And I'm feeling keenly this morning my inability to make us, quote, get it. What we need is the Holy Spirit to move. Amen. We need the Holy Spirit to speak clearly. There's times where I wish I just had that ability to sort of reach over and flip on the get it switch in the back of all of our heads and in our hearts, but I don't have that ability. And what that does is that makes us reliant upon Jesus. We're going to look at some verses, y'all, for about the next 40 minutes, and if the Holy Spirit does not move and speak through these verses, um, you know, I, I want to dare say that we could have spent our time doing something else better. What we need is a desperate move of the Holy Spirit to speak and to pierce and to change us, to open our eyes, to help us see what we cannot see on our own. So let's pray for that. My encouragement for you is this. As I am praying for you, don't check out for these next 30 seconds. Maybe look left and look right to the person in the row that you're with and go to bat for them. Be a Jesus people, part of a Jesus family right now, and lift your petition before the Lord. Lord, the person in this row needs to hear Jesus, needs to see Jesus, needs to believe Jesus, needs to run after Jesus, needs to focus on Jesus, needs to consider Jesus, and we need you to help us. So pray for that, all right? And then we'll turn into these words, all right? So let's do that. Lord, as my brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for one another right now, I Pray for them. My mind drifts to the realities of the two disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. And they just weren't quite seeing clearly. And so what Jesus talks about is the realities for the need of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our minds, to understand the words of God as revealed in the scriptures so that they could come to the place where they saw clearly how Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus is our only hope of salvation. Jesus is the one worthy of our worship. Jesus is the Savior that we need. So Holy Spirit, I'm just asking that you would do that, that you would give us a little, a little taste of that Emmaus road walk 
that you would open our eyes to see, open our minds to understand these words before us so that we might be encouraged to stay the course. Holy Spirit, we're asking you to do this so that our hearts and our minds would focus on the only one who is worthy to receive all the focus, worship, and attention of our lives, and that is Jesus. Holy Spirit, help for Christ's sake and for his glory. Amen. Well, as I said, when we rolled into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, what we realized was this. The author was turning to the practical application of everything that we've been studying now for multiple months. What he wanted to do was do this. Not only lay before us what right gospel belief looks like, but then to sort of hold our hands, as it were, and lead us down the path so we can see the translation of what right gospel belief looks like into right gospel action. What does obedience in everyday living for everyday disciples look like as a result of believing Jesus Christ is the Savior that we need? He rolled into this practical application of the truths we've been learning, and he's told us that since, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here is how we are to live accordingly. And he kept saying that phrase, remember, let us do this, let us think this way, let us run in this way. He said, let us draw near to God, let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Jesus. Let us consider then how to stir up one another to love and good works. He rolled into that reality of what faith looks like. He says, we're not those who shrink back in faith, but in faith we press forward, we stay the course, we run firm to the end because we are walking by faith. Faith in who? Faith in the one, the living God. We have assurance of things hoped for. We have the conviction of things unseen. This is the practical application of the pursuit of the living God. And then he said, ultimately, if you want to think of the walk of faith in the living God in this way, he says you can think of it more like a long-distance run. Thus, says the author, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, we want to run the race of faith with endurance. We want to reject Chuck off every weight and sin that might prevent us from finishing the race. He said, in the race, let us look to Jesus. Let us consider Jesus. And then ultimately, he says, don't forget that as you run the race in love, God the Father will discipline you for your good so that you might actually complete the race. And now, as he rolls back into our section, our text this morning, he's going to re-pick back up that imagery of athletics. And our author, like the good coach that he is, he's going to cheer us on one more time. His consuming desire is to see his fellow faith runners stay the course and finish the race. That's what he wants for those fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and subsequently that's what he wants for you, and that's what he wants for me. He knows that a common reaction to God's discipline is to give up and stop running entirely. Remember, 
verse 12 begins with the word therefore. Therefore rolls us right back into that section on the Father's discipline. And he says it's good that the Father disciplines us. It is for our pursuit so that we can chuck off sin and run a little bit more streamlined. But he knows that as we receive discipline, verse 11 says, man, I know it's painful at times. I know it's unpleasant. And what he knows is that the common reaction of God's people to God's discipline is to give up and stop running entirely. But at the very moment that we feel like giving up, here's the author saying, don't. Don't stay the course. Keep on. Keep running firm to the end. And right now, this morning, you might be sitting here listening to the words of my mouth, and you're like, man, you don't need to convince me anymore of this, man. I, I, am, I am in the low valley of the race right now. You might be tired in your race of faith right now. The going is hard in your race. The pains are severe in your race, and the difficulties are numerous in the race. But what I want you to do, as it were, is to turn the ear of your heart and lay it on the page of God's Word to you, and I want you to hear the whisper of the Savior as He looks to you and He says this, Don't quit. Don't quit. Stay the course. Run firm to the end. The invitation of this text is for you to hear. To hear your great high priest speaking through this author as this author is carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we understand is that it's not merely the author of this letter cheering us on, but it's ultimately our great high priest himself cheering you on. He's cheering you on towards the finish line as he speaks through the author. There is an ancient path that gospel pilgrims are called to run that will see them from the city of destruction straight through right into the celestial city. A straight path that has been blazed by the forerunner himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And so the question for us to ask of this text comes down to this. If I am to stay the course on this path, the gospel path, the Jesus-blazed path, what does this look like? What does the race of faith require of me? What are like sort of, let's get down to brass tacks. What does it mean for me to get up out of here and walk into the next six days and 22 hours and to run in such a way where I stay the course? The author says, well, I'm glad you're thinking of these questions because I have answers for you. And the author says it first requires this, that we stay the course and be strong. Stay the course and be strong. So open up your copy of Scripture. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Why? So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In a long-distance run, if any of you have ever done anything that remotely looks like running long-distance, running a path, pursuing something where you had to give some sort of physical exertion for an extended amount of time, it's amazing how a familiar voice of encouragement can spur you to run on at the very moment when you think, man, I, like, surely I can't take another step. 
This illustration just comes to mind. I just saw your face, Miss Megan. You ran a marathon? And you had people strategically placed at certain areas where like mile, whatever, 10, 16, 18, 12, like, in the mo- like I can't take it. Then all of a sudden someone comes along and says, yeah, you can do it. Stay the course. Keep on going. And then all of a sudden you're just energized. You're injected with something that says, yes. And then all of a sudden you find the strength to be able to keep running toward the goal. The person on the sideline knows where you're at. The person knows that at that moment you're on the verge of giving up. The person knows your hands are hanging down. They know you're wobbling and getting dangerously close to zigzagging off the track in that moment. But it's at this very point when the race is toughest and the runner is most tempted to quit that the enthusiastic shouts of stay the course, be strong, have some mysterious power to do this. Energized, droopy hands. Those weak knees and feeble feet that just aren't sure they can take another step, all of a sudden they're energized to be able to pick back up and keep on running. You see, the reason the author is urging his audience To be strong is because he knows that a common reaction to God's discipline is to give up. And he says, I don't want you to be on the receiving end of the Father's discipline and just chuck it out the window and just give up. Because the paradox of God's discipline for his children is that the hard things we experience that make us want to quit the race, says the author, are the very same things that God uses to keep us from quitting. So the father isn't up there exercising good, fatherly, God-glorifying discipline so he can squish you and screw you to the ground and make you bail out on the race. It's actually him using the stuff of life, the discipline that comes our way, so that we will wake up in that moment, chuck off the stuff that is preventing us from running as well as we could be, and so that we can actually keep going in the race. So when discipline comes... Don't give in to discouragement. Instead, lift those hands up. Set your feet. Stay the course and be strong as you make straight paths for your feet, he says in verse 13. Some race of faith runners have become lame and need to be healed. Surely you've run the race of faith if you've run for like more than like five minutes from that first moment of salvation. You look around and you see that people are at various stages of the race. Some are strong and some are running good. Some are weak. Some are tripping. Some are like in mid-flight, you know, as they've just tripped over a root and they're like mid-air about the face plant. Some people are just dragging their feet because they've been hurt down along the line. And what he's saying here is, listen, I want you to realize, look left and look right. As you run the race, you're running alongside some who are lame, some who are sick, some who are just spiritually off, spiritually stubbed toes, spiritually broken femurs, spiritually who just have droopy hands. They're despondent. They're discouraged. They need help. And the way that you can help them is by, in a Christ-reliant way, looking to the power of the Holy Spirit, asking the Holy Spirit, would you help me to be strong and run in such a way so that I can come alongside my friends who are lame and need to be healed and so that I can scoop them up and help 
carry them along down the line. Because right now they're wanting to quit. Surely you guys have seen videos online of someone running a long distance race. They're rounding the corner. The tape is right in front of them. And as they're starting to go, they start to stumble. And then someone comes up out of the crowd and picks them up. And they just help carry them along down. Like, don't quit, man. Don't, don't stay back there. I'm just going to help. I'm going to help you. Move you right on down the line because I want to breast the tape of faith with you together. That is the language. In order to prevent those who are lame and need to be healed, in order to prevent them from being put out of joint any further, he says. Our example of Christ-reliant strength might just be what God uses to re-energize you right back up into the race. So the race of faith requires that we stay the course and be strong. So a good question that you can ask yourself is this. Am I running the race in strength? Not your own strength, but running the race in the strength of Christ. Are my paths straight? Or am I one who is lame and needs to be healed? The implication of the text is this. If you are running strong, you're running straight, look left and look right. Are there those around you who need some help? If you are one who finds yourself needing some help in the race of faith, have you made that known to someone? Have you gone to them and said, I'm struggling? I got droopy hands. My knees are weak. I feel like I'm just doing this in the Christian life. I'm just dragging a leg. I need help. Make that known to someone. Second, what he says is this. Not only do we run the race of faith, staying the course and being strong, but also it requires this. Second point, that we stay the course by striving forward. That's verse 14. Look at your copy of Scripture there. Verse 14. He says, strive. Some of your translations might say pursue or strain. Strain forward. Strain in this way. Give your complete and utter absolute exertion insofar as it's up to you. For what? For peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I just love that language there of striving pursuing, straining towards something, giving the, giving the utter limits of exertion towards reaching and attaining this certain goal because this language of striving, it's just the complete language of pursuit. It's just the Holy Spirit through the author saying, like, let's pursue this thing. Let's, let's run after this. In a long-distance race, faithful running is marked by striving that presses forward towards the prize. The mental image is this, is that we're all doing this to some level. We're running, we're striving, we're sweating, we're moving forward. And remember, all of these stay-the-course realities are not so that you can earn grace. He's not saying stay the course and be strong, because if you be strong and you run to the end, Jesus is really going to love you for that, and he might just give you heaven at the end if you did a really good job. That's not what he's saying. 
What he's saying is because you are a sinner who was dead in your sins and trespasses and you needed a savior who could save you and resurrect you to the newness of life and you found that in the Lord Jesus Christ and by his grace he saved you, by his mercy he resurrected you to newness of life, you now as a recipient of grace get to run in such a way not to earn something because Jesus has already done everything on your behalf to earn what you need, but now, because he's applied that to your account, you are now free to run in this way. And not run in perfection, but to exert yourself and run in this way. The author is saying this, that the forward pursuit, listen, the forward pursuit of every runner is the rhythmic stride of peace and holiness. It's the rhythmic stride. If you've ever run in a long-distance race, everyone looks like a bobblehead running up and down. If you're running behind a bunch of people, there's just a bunch of heads popping up and down, popping up and down. Why? Because they're, they're doing this. It's the rhythmic stride. They've got a stride going, and it's peace, holiness, peace, holiness, peace, holiness, peace, holiness. I'm striving towards it. I'm running towards it. I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing this thing. That's the rhythmic stride of faithful runners in the race of faith. The psalmist calls us to seek peace and pursue it, Jesus says it's the peacemakers who are blessed, and the Apostle Paul reminds us, so far as it depends on you, live in conflict with everyone. No. Live peaceably with all, he says. Now, unfortunately, you know what I know, and that's just because people are Christians, it does not mean that this peace is going to come automatically. And all God's people looked on their social media feed and said, amen. Yeah? All you got to do is look at your social media feed and you see Christians losing their, losing their minds, man. That's why Paul's exhortation to the Christians in Ephesus was to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Did you hear what he said there? Eagerly maintain the Holy Spirit himself is the one who attains peace between a very diverse body of people. Ethnic diversity, age diversity, educational diversity, political diversity. Whatever you want to put in front of the word diversity, you will find that mix in the body of Christ. And what the author is saying in line with what the rest of the New Testament writers are saying is this. The Holy Spirit shoots past those boundaries. He, he works in the lives of dead sinners. He resurrects them and he folds this beautiful kaleidoscope of diversity into a Jesus family. And it says in the scriptures that it's he, the Holy Spirit, who has attained that unity. It is by the spiritual glue of the Holy Spirit who's bonded these people together in peace. And now it's our job to maintain what the Spirit has attained. That's just what the author is saying here right now. Remember, peace, what is it? It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but its opposite is rivalries, divisions, disunity, strife, jealousy, envy, all thorns of the flesh which have power to trip up the strongest of runners in the race of faith. Just think. Look in the rearview mirror of your life. Just think how many people you know who are no longer running the race of faith 
because the Jesus people they were around were marked more by striving for conflict than peace. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and they're like, yeah, let's go to church. Or like, let's check out my community group. Or would you like to read the Bible? And their response can be a myriad of things, but a not uncommon response is no way. Those people don't love one another. Some Christians are the most unloving people that I've ever met. They seem more committed to striving for conflict than they do striving for peace. And that, brothers and sisters, is to our shame because we are misrepresenting the Savior who saved us, the Prince of Peace. When the Prince of Peace saves us and then we go out and say with our actions and our words, we actually more represent the Prince of Confusion, the Prince of Conflict, the Prince of Disunity, the Prince of Not Peace, Satan himself, it sends a mixed signal and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised that some people running the race, boom, trips over this and lands flat on their face and gives them like, that's what the Jesus thing is all about. I don't want anything with it. Wash their hands, they're gone. So that's why he's saying strive for this. Not to save yourself, but because you have been saved in Christ, okay? We've been called, he says, to make straight paths for our feet and subsequently for the feet of others. Therefore, we are to be on guard against littering the race path with the debris of division and strife. The imagery that I have in my mind, all of our Mario Kart. Anyone here grew up playing Mario Kart? Original Nintendo 64, right? Okay. Yeah, I'm old, man. Like, I'm, I'm, start, I'm 40, and I realize a lot of my childhood stuff, people are like, what are you talking about, man? Which is sad, but it's the way it is. You drove the carts, and what would you do when you got the banana? You tucked, you launched the banana over you. You're trying to litter the race path with debris so that those people don't finish the race. We as Christians can sort of do that by chucking division and conflict over our shoulder as we run down the road and there's people trying to, trying to do this and some people don't and they hit it, trip, wipe out. He says, don't, don't do that. Let's strive for peace. Let's not strive to litter the race path with the debris of division and strife. Now, notice that in the same way that we pursue peace, he says in verse 14, that we are to, notice, pursue holiness in the same way. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a very sobering phrase there. The author has already told us that through Jesus Christ, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. This is our true position before God in Christ. But notice that the author has also told us that we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. So he says, right now, if you are here in Christ, two truths are true of you. Positionally, in Christ... You stand before one, before God as one who is holy. You have been declared holy. Your position before a sovereign God in Christ is this, holy, sanctified. But he says the backside of that coin is this, also true. You're growing in that sanctification. You're growing in that holiness. You are positionally holy and progressively growing in that holiness. Progressively growing to fight that your words, your thoughts, your desires, your actions all align with the reality and the truths of who you are positionally in Christ as a man and a woman declared holy before a holy God. So there is not only a positional aspect, but that progressive aspect as we strive to see that holiness invade every area of our lives. Now, here too, we know ourselves all too well, don't we? We look into the mirror, and the reflection that comes back is us. And we know ourselves enough to know that the thoughts 
of my mind, the motives of my heart, the attitudes that I embrace, the habits that I cherish, the priorities that rule my calendar, the loves, the hates, the trusts, the opinions, and many other things in our lives do not reflect God's holiness perfectly every second, every minute, every hour, every day, every week, every month, every year. So the question is, what does God the Father do so that you and I might progress in being holy as He is holy? Did you know that that is a command that God the Father gives to His children? I am the extreme epitome of holiness. And the command that I give to you, beloved children, is I want you to be holy as I am holy. The question is, what does God the Father do so that you and I might progress in being holy as He is holy? Answer, everything we talked about last week. He disciplines us. Just remember what verse 10 said last week. Listen to this. This is key. He says, the Father disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we might share in His what? Holiness. Without holiness, the author says, no one will see the Lord. So do you see the comforting grace of the Father's discipline in our lives? The author says, strive for holiness. And what you need to know about holiness is this. Without holiness, you will not see the Lord. Thus, what the Father does is this. He disciplines us so that you and I might share in the very thing we need in order to see him. Is that just not grace upon grace? He says, here's the standard. Live up to the standard. Oh, by the way, I'm going to work in your life so that you will be able to do the very thing that I'm calling you to do. And that is the goodness of discipline. That's why the author is saying, don't like, try to get out from underneath the discipline of the Lord because for your good, he's disciplining you. So that as he disciplines you, you will be conformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus. You will come to share more and more in his holiness. And by the way, it's the holiest you need in order to be able to see me. And so the author is just sort of fanning this stuff into flame. So just pause. Pause and hear the warning of verse 14. It's a warning that's just deeply embedded in there. And the warning is this, if, listen, if you never experience the discipline of God the Father, and thus you experience no growth whatsoever in holiness, there is no trajectory of growth in your life where you are moving sometimes in leaps and bounds, sometimes in incremental inches. But what you can say is this. It doesn't matter if it's leaps and bounds or inches. There is just no trajectory whatsoever of growing in holiness. Then you must wonder whether you are really in the race at all. You might say, I'm in the race. You might say, Jesus is Lord. You might profess with your mouth certain things to be true, but if the evidence of your life is no discipline ever comes my way from the Father, it said last week, that means you're an illegitimate child. 
And if there's no growth in holiness whatsoever in your life, verse 14 says that holiness that is lacking means on the day that you stand before God, you will not ultimately get to be with him for all of eternity. So this is why you must ask yourself right now in this moment, am I on a growing trajectory of holiness in my life? Am I on that growing trajectory? Do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, are you perfect right now? Never messing up, stumbling or sinning ever. I'm not saying that. But if you can look back and say, I really haven't grown in holiness from last year to this year. Well, and to be honest, I haven't grown in any holiness from two years ago, three years ago, four, five, ten, fifteen, twelve. Then the author is lovingly calling you to ask yourself, I know what you say with your lips about being a race of faith runner, but it could very well be that you are not. And if not, then you are out of the race. If there's no growth in holiness, you're out of the race. You're out of the race, that is, unless you repent of your sin. Come to Jesus, trusting in him as your only hope of salvation. And guess what Jesus does? He makes you new. He redeems you. He resurrects you to newness of life. And he grabs you by the scruff of the neck, as it were, sets you on the race path, and sort of, all right, let's go. And then off we go. We start running. We start running the race. So the invitation is yours this morning. You can come, turn from your sin, turn to Jesus to be saved. This is how you enter the race of faith. This is how you join the congregation of faith runners, runners strong, runners striving, third and last, runners who stay the course and avoid hazards that can trip you up along the way. This is verses 15 through 17. Stay the course and avoid hazards. Here he's going to get real practical. He's going to show us that as you run the race, if you guys have ever been on a cross-country course, it's not just like a smooth rubber track. There's roots and there's rocks and there's dips and there's curves. There's all kinds of things that can trip you up along the race. And what he says is, this is the course set before us. We're going to run straight. But what you need to know is there's things along the way that can just completely trip you up and wipe you out. And I want you to avoid these at all costs. These verses, 15, 16, and 17, these are the last cheers of encouragement from our author. And he's cheering us on to avoid that which can prevent us from finishing the race. And so he says, look, starting in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral, and see to it that no one is unholy like Esau. Listen, brothers and sisters, we are not running the race of faith on our own. Just remember the illustration last week where I asked Brady to stand up. I'm not going to do it to you again, although I really feel like I should, but I won't. We asked Brady to stand up and just stand there and run in place. And it was sort of lonely. And then we had everyone stand up and join him. Right, The race of faith, while the race of faith is personal, the race of faith is not private. That's why we gather on Sunday morning. That's why we scatter in community groups and discipleship groups. It's because the personal aspect of I am a sinner who needs to be saved, I then join a whole congregation of race of faith runners who are also running that exact same race. 
It's personal, but it's not private. This is why we must see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, he says in verse 15. When we see others stumbling, wobbling, we don't just sort of shrug our shoulders and press on. Well, you know, you win some and you lose some, <laughs> and you just keep on going down the line. He says, no, 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 that, that is not the approach that we are to have. Instead, we grab them, keep them running, we pray for them, and we support them. And one way we can support fellow faith runners is to keep our collective eyes peeled for those things, those tripping hazards that can sort of stub our toe, catch us, throw us off guard, and wipe us out of the race. So here they are, verse 15. The author warns us, do not trip on the root of bitterness. Don't trip on the root of bitterness. Verse 15, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This phrase is an allusion all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. I'd recommend you go read it. But what is interesting is that this allusion to Deuteronomy 29, where the root of bitterness is mentioned, it is not, as we might assume, talking about a feeling. Bitterness, feeling, worms its way into your heart, becomes a root that invades everything else. That is a turn of phrase that we use, but actually the allusion here, back to Deuteronomy 29, is not talking about a feeling. It's actually talking about a person that can become a root of bitterness. In the context of Deuteronomy 29, this person, this root of bitterness, who are they? They are someone who abandons the way of the Lord and ultimately leads others astray. It is another way of talking about someone who commits apostasy, who says, I used to profess Jesus, but I never possessed Jesus. I would talk about all the time how I had the Team Jesus jersey on, I had the Team Jesus track cleats on, I had the Team Jesus banner waving over me. I, I, yeah, of course that's what I am, but at some point in time they eventually go, yeah, this Team Jesus thing really stings, and they, they rip it off and they chuck it off because they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And this root of bitterness is something to keep your eyes peeled for, this person, this apostate that, that chucks it all and abandons the way of the Lord because what the author is saying is this person can become a tripping hazard that wipes out a bunch of other people. Again, if you've ever seen, I used to run track and field when I was in high school, and my event that I loved to run, absolutely loved to run, was the mile, the mile race because it's that perfect combination of long distance and speed. I mean, you had to be fast, and you ran fast for a complete mile. I just loved it. But one of the dangers of running the mile was this. When the pack was tight and you're all running together, one of the things, I mean, you surely you've seen this online, just one person just sort of accidentally clips the heels of someone else, and then all of a sudden, like, people are like, boom, everyone's going out. It looks like a grenade exploded in the midst of those runners, and everyone's tripping and fumbling and stumbling and going down. Some people get back up, and they, they're trying to run along in the race. Some people are completely wiped out of the race by that one person who tripped and just bowled everyone over. And what the author is saying here in these verses is this. In the same way, someone who says, I was walking with Jesus, did the Jesus stuff, loved the Jesus stuff, owned the Jesus stuff, went to the Jesus stuff, would talk the Jesus stuff, claim to possess the Jesus stuff, but eventually comes to some place where they cross that invisible line and say, you know what, I really don't. Like, I'm fully. I'm not talking about the, the little doubts and the worries that we get in the, in the race of faith. I'm, I'm talking about someone who firmly and finally comes to the place where they say, I do not want Jesus 
I don't want him. And I'm chucking the Jesus stuff all together. The author is saying this person who abandons Jesus in this way can become a tripping hazard who fall causes many others to trip. And like a poisonous root bearing bitter fruit, their denial and abandonment of Jesus has a way of infecting others, leading them astray. Avoid this hazard, says the author. Be on the lookout for this hazard. Second, next he warns, do not trip on the root of sexual immorality. See to it, he says, that no one is sexually immoral. In a day and age which minimizes sexual sin, the Bible maximizes its severity. All you have to do is just look over. I don't want to rob Peter to pay Paul, but if you look over into chapter 13, verse 4, he says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That phraseology right there is mocked, it's jeered, it's absolutely looked down upon in our culture. Our culture strives with all its might to minimize sexual sin. But the Bible maximizes its severity. Many who once professed faith in Christ are no longer running the race of faith because they've tripped on the root of sexual immorality. In the original language, the word for sexual immorality is the word pornos. It's where we get our word pornography from. And what it does, it's describing the act of sex outside of marriage. The way this root can trip someone up is that it takes God's good gift of sex and it demands that there be no boundaries to this gift. But for our good and God's glory, God's gift of sex does have boundaries because he knows that sex will be most fully enjoyed as he designed it to be enjoyed within the bounds, the covenantal bounds of that promise between one man and one woman in marriage till death do us part. But the world rages against this boundary, and I can't count how many times I've seen people stuck in that tension where they're trying to decide whether they will trust God's design in sex or embrace the world's perversion of sex only to chuck God aside and ultimately trip on the root of sexual immorality. I saw it in college. I see it today where people begin to go. They begin to buy into the lie of Genesis 3. What's the lie of Genesis 3? The lie of Genesis 3 is this. Did God really say? Did God really set that boundary for your good? If you go back into the garden where Adam and Eve are in the garden, think about what it is. We get really hung up on the you can't have this one one fruit of this tree. But think about what the reverse side of that coin is. You can have everything else. Look at this. This is all for your good. This is all for your pleasure. This is all for your enjoyment. And as you enjoy these good things, as you eat of this and you just, you know this good pleasure, you will know me more fully. But here's my boundary on this reality. Don't go here. This boundary is for your good. This boundary is because I love you. This boundary, if you cross it, you will find yourself in a place where you will die. Along comes the serpent, Satan himself, and says in questions, does God, I don't know about that boundary. Yeah, 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 you can have all the other stuff, but is God really loving you by setting this boundary on this? Because the way I understand it, says Satan, is this. If God really loved you, there would be no boundaries to this thing at all. 
and you could just have at it in any way you wanted to, and you could just go nuts. That is what love looks like. Love equals no boundaries. And that same serpentine lie just gets translated over into our world today where people say, I want to be able to have sex however I want to, whenever I want to, with whoever I want to, with how many people I want to, because that is what love is. Love looks like no boundaries. But the thing that we see here is this, is that when we find ourselves in that place where we're pursuing the Lord, and you see people wrestling with this tension, will I take God at his word, trust him, that he is good, and that these boundaries are for my flourishing and for his glory, or will I look at those boundaries and rage against them, chuck them out, and say, God, I don't care about your boundaries. I'm going to pursue this reality according to my own definition. Surely you know a bunch of people who come to that place and say, I don't want what God wants. What I want is what I want. And then that becomes the root of sexual immorality that wipes many people out. They veer off the path and they run down the bypath of sexual immorality and they're just gone. You just don't see them around anymore because they're chasing after that, that which they want. Now what you need to know is this, that if you have ever found yourself in that place where you have gone down the path, the bypath of sexual immorality, you're not beyond the saving arm of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're just not. Jesus Christ saves sinners. What this is talking about here is be on alert. Don't run after this thing because eventually if you just run after saying not God's way, my way, not your way, my way, no, mine, no, mine, no, mine, no, mine, no, mine, no, mine, no, mine. Eventually there comes a lot of time when you'll cross the invisible line where God says because you want it, have it. We don't know when that line is. And this morning, if you're hearing my voice and you go, man, I, I've gone pretty far down this path, but I don't know that I want to be on this path anymore. And like the son in Luke 15 who came to his senses and realized, man, I've got a loving father. Man, I've made a complete hash of this thing. I've blown my inheritance. I ran out on the father. I basically gave him the middle finger and said, I don't ever want to see you again. I have gone and squandered it, and I am sitting in pig slop, eating pig crap. It is all. He came to his senses, said Jesus, and said, I have a father who loves me. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to go to him, only to be met halfway down the road by the father pursuing you and running right back and scooping them up and saying, you don't need to say anything. You are welcomed in this house because my love covers a multitude of sins. If you have found yourself in this place, what you need to know is this. You're not too dirty. You're not too shameful. You're not too far beyond the saving reach of a gracious Savior who went to the cross and bore your sins so that you might be washed clean by the blood and made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation is to come. You're not too far gone. Flee to Christ and know the salvation that can be found in him. Lastly, and this will go a little bit more quickly, don't trip on a root of instant gratification. That's what's going on with this character Esau. See to it that no one is unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal 
You know, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Back in chapter 11, we saw Esau's brother. Who was Esau's brother? Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Jacob walked by faith in what he could not see, but here is Esau, and he's a man who was completely beholden only to that which he could see. Esau was a man driven by instant gratification. The satisfaction of his earthly appetites was more to be desired than God's heavenly gift. The fleeting pleasures of sin were the control center of his decisions. And when we live only with the here and now in view, forgetting the there and then realities of the heavenly city to which we belong, like Esau, we will sell our birthright for a bowl of soup. Essentially, Esau fell out of the race and his undoing was just the pursuit of pleasure. That's what he, you see, that's what was going on. He said, I want pleasure. I want it here. I want it now. I don't care about what God is promising. I don't care that that means the denial of something now. I will forsake all of that in an instant so that in Esau's case, I can get a bowl of soup. And how many people running the race of faith who have said, I know this, I know the future, I know the heaven reality, but here's what I want. I want sex my way now. I want alcohol my way now. I want money my way now. I want power my way now. I want control my way now. I want relationships my way now. And what they do is driven by instant gratification in the here and now, they happily chuck the there and then of forever life with Christ right out the window, and then they find themselves in a place like Esau. Now, later on, Esau began to realize what he had done, and he desired to inherit the blessing that he traded away. But the Scripture says it was too late. He was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And at first glance, this passage might seem to teach that God denies a person a chance to repent, even if they wish to do so. But what you need to know is that God never rejects true, genuine repentance. He doesn't do it. But Esau stands as an example of someone who regrets what he has done, but not, does not truly repent of their wrongdoing. All of us have seen this before, where we're pursuing the instant gratification, the fleeting pleasures of sin here and now, and then maybe we get caught got tears on our face, we feel really bad, we're really sorry that we did it, but the tears and the sorrow of our heart are not because we have grieved a holy God, we just regret the fact that we sort of got busted. We regret the fact that that might have been a poor decision, and that's exactly where Esau is. He simply just regrets that he lost his birthright and his blessing as the firstborn son. So what Esau discovered is that when he tripped on the route of instant gratification, he crossed the invisible line of no return. He chose to think little of the things of God and then ultimately found himself condemned to walk along the path that he had chosen, that of living and then dying without the Lord. Brothers and sisters, at all costs, says the author, avoid this hazard. Instead, stay the course and be strong. Stay the course by striving forward. Stay the course and avoid the hazards. And what you will discover, listen, what you will discover is this, is that as you forget what lies behind, and then as you strain forward to what lies ahead, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus will keep drawing nearer and nearer and nearer until that day you finally cross the tape, the final finish of the race, and then what you receive in that moment is the prize of Jesus Christ himself. 
Man, Lord, hasten that day. Amen? Stay the course, saints. Let's pray. Lord, come. Move in power. Move in might. Lord, take these words that have been spoken, and would you just pluck one truth out of them and then press them home to our hearts in various ways. Not all of us needed to hear everything that was said, but my trust is that all of us needed to hear at least one thing that was said this morning, and it could be a bunch of different one things. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, press that one thing home to our soul so that we might not only hear and be hearers of the word, but then leave here this morning empowered by your strength as doers of the word. Lord Jesus, help us to stay the course for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.